This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. I am unbelievably thrilled to welcome the one and only Raphael Bob Waxberg um, to Politics and Prose. As you all know, uh, back in the 2010s, he created the very famous Netflix show, Bojack Horseman. Um, And tonight, he's here to talk about his new short story collection, Someone Who Will Love You in All Your Damaged Glory. It's a wonderful debut collection from a master comic storyteller, and I cannot recommend it enough. So without further ado, please give a warm welcome to Raphael Bob Waxberg. Hello, Hello, everybody. Thank you, thank you for for coming uh, out in the the rain. I appreciate it. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna get right into it. I didn't bring my own book, so I'm gonna use this one. <laughs> I hope it doesn't ruin the tableau that was set up. <laughs> Just remember, this is what the book looks like. And so, as I'm reading it, you can think to yourself, it's the pink cover one. So if later, like I want to get what he was reading, what was it again? It's this one. Um, I'm gonna. So just the basic structure of this evening is I'm going to read a thing, and then I think I'm going to talk for a little bit, and then I think I'm going to read another thing, and then I'm going to answer some questions if you guys have any questions. You can start thinking of questions while I'm reading. Um, we'll see how it goes, though. I don't know. This is the, the, the first story in the collection. Uh, what if I just started reading and then just read the whole book? That'd be nuts, right? No, but I'm starting, I'm starting at the beginning. Here we go. The date is going well. He's handsome and charming and everything he claimed to be on the website. She likes him, she decides. He's the kind of guy you could introduce to your friends, she decides. After dinner, he invites her back to his place. He opens a bottle of wine and pours her a glass. He also offers her a tall, skinny can with a rubber lid. Salted circus cashew? What's a circus cashew, she asks. Open it up, he says. See for yourself. She looks at the can. The label says, the cashew company's very own. And then in big, bold letters, salted circus cashews. And then in smaller letters, tasty, salty. And then in even smaller letters, ingredients, cashews, salt. And then on the side, there's a drawing of a man with a whip, a lion tamer. The whole design of the can is circus-themed. And the lion tamer has a speech balloon coming out of his mouth. And inside the speech balloon, it says, Hello, friends. Please enjoy these freshly salted circus cashews, courtesy of the cashew company. Made with the finest ingredients combined to perfection, this can contains only the best salted circus cashews. There certainly isn't a fake snake wrapped around a spring that will jump out and startle you when you remove the top, if that's what you were thinking. No, no, perish the thought. Only cashews here, I swear to God. I am being 100% sincere about the cashews. Why would there be a snake in here? That's crazy talk. Look, if you open this can and a pretend snake jumps out at you, then you have my permission to never trust me again. But why would you want to miss out on the opportunity to eat delicious salted cashews just because of the slight off chance that this is all an elaborate ruse to make you appear foolish? Okay, I see you are still not opening the can. And I understand that. Maybe you are right to be cautious. 
You have been lied to before, after all. Your heart is weathered and scarred, mishandled by many, eroded by time. You are no dummy, and yet repeatedly you stumble over the cracks of your cobblestone heart. You let your naked foolish hopes get the better of you. Perhaps every can of cashews has a fake snake lurking, but you keep opening them, stupidly, because in your heart of hearts you still believe in cashews. And every time you discover the cruel fiction of the cashew can, you swear to yourself you'll trust a little less next time. You'll be a little less open, a little more hard. It's not worth it, you say. It just isn't worth it. You're smarter than all that. From now on, you're going to be smarter. Well, I'm here to tell you that this time will be different, even though I have absolutely no evidence to support that claim. Open this can, and everything will be okay. The salted circus cashews are waiting. They are so savory and delicious. You will be so glad you put your faith in me. This time is different. I promise you it's different. Why would I lie to you? Why would I want to hurt you? This time, there is no snake waiting. This time, things are going to be wonderful. So that's the first story. Um, and it, it does, uh, set up some themes of the book. And I, I realized because I've, I've been doing, um, a bunch of interviews, uh, in the past few weeks, uh, promoting the book and people ask, what is, what is the book about and what does it mean? Um, and I kind of surprised myself that I had an answer because while I was writing it, I didn't really know what the book was about. I, I, I kind of knew that it was going to be about love, uh, broadly. Um, and all the stories are about love in some sense, which is a very, you know, broad thing for a book of short stories to be about. Um, but only in talking about it have I really articulated uh, its thesis. You know, when I was writing, I would write a, something and I, I would think, this is good for the book. I'd write something else and think, this is not good for the book. This doesn't go in the book. And I, I didn't know where I was going. Uh, and yet somehow I found it. And I think what this book is about, uh, which is kind of laid out in this first story, it's love. And uh, the thesis, I guess, is that love is hard and love is challenging and love is scary. Um, and the question of the book is, is it worth it? And I don't know. Um, you have to read the book to find out. Um, I, I have my answer, um, but I think this book is actually full of the pros and cons, um, and depending on where you are in your life, I like to think this book acts uh, a little bit as a, a Rorschach test and will kind of meet you where you are uh, and perhaps make you think about where you are, and you might be convinced uh, by the cynicism in the book, or you might be convinced by the hope in the book, uh, and, and that is your journey to go on, and it's none of my business, frankly. Um, so I, I wanted to do something uh, special for every stop on my bookstore store, store trip, bookstore trip, uh, book tour is the phrase I was looking for. <laughs> See, that's the special thing. I didn't rehearse that phrase, so it came out like that. Um, so I, want, I wanted to do something special for politics and prose. Um, so that was the prose part of the evening. Let's talk about politics, guys. Um, and there is a point to this. It's going to relate back, maybe, I don't know. Uh, I think it'll relate back, um, because uh, a question people ask me a lot as a writer is, where do your ideas come from, right? 
Um, and the truth is, the ideas come from my ideas. They come from things that I'm thinking about or fascinated by. Um, and so I want to tell you a little bit about a thing that I've been fascinated by for a while, and then I'm going to read you a little bit from a story that kind of came out of that. Um, so the thing that I've been fascinated by is my favorite uh, American president, uh, Chester A. Arthur. Um, so just to, to, to recap who Chester A. Arthur is, uh, I have I prepared a little song. Uh, you can use as a mnemonic to kind of remind, oh, right, he's that one. Um, I think it's catchy. When you guys get it, feel free to sing along, okay? Here we go. I'm going to sing a song now. Bum, bum, bum. Chester Allen Arthur was the son of a preacher. Before he was the pres, he was a lawyer and a teacher. Good. 20th VP, he was then inaugurated. When Garfield pissed somebody off and got assassinated. In the scope of history, his presidency seems short, but he found time to name two justices to the Supreme Court. Great. Julius Sand inspired him to be less of a doormat. His primary achievement was the <laughs> Pendleton Reform Act. <laughs> After his first term, he had to find a new vocation, the last incumbent not to earn his party's nomination. He didn't have a lot of time to dine on fancy cheeses. He died just two years later cuz his kidney had diseases. That's who Chester Arthur is. Um, so, it's, can I sing it again? Maybe at the end we can all go through it together, and you'll and you'll know what it's all about. So, in in the in the um, in the the seventies uh, and eighties, um, and of course I'm talking about the eighteen seventies and eighties. Politics was overrun uh, with uh, corruption and, and cronyism. I know that's difficult to imagine, um, but there was a lot of uh, people doing favors for each other, um, and you know a lot of appointments were being made without consideration of who would be the best person for this job, but rather, you know, who owes me something or who do I owe something? And how can I get my guys uh, on top? Um, and in fact. Uh, Chester A. Arthur was the poster boy for that exact kind of thing. Um, the very reason he was added to the Garfield ticket was to reach out to that wing of the Republican Party that was, like, super into corruption and cronyism, right? It's like uh, like Barack Obama, uh, when he wanted to balance out the ticket, he got an old, uh, white, working-class, hard-scrabble guy to balance out the ticket. Uh, James Garfield, to balance out the ticket, got a corrupt crony <laughs> because there was a section of his party that wanted that uh, in an administration. Um, so then uh, James Garfield uh, got shot, um, kind of because of this, because uh, there was a guy who thought he deserved an ambassadorship and then didn't get it. Um, and uh, in those days, uh, when someone got shot, uh, people paid attention and decided to maybe make some laws or change the rules. Um, and so there was a movement now, oh, maybe we, this system isn't quite good. Um, but James Garfield, like, really took his time dying. He was, like, a real drama whore about it. He, like, took two months, like, oh, I was shot, oh. So there's a lot of time of, like, 
what's going to happen? Is he going to die? And so uh, a 31-year-old woman uh, by the name of Julia Sand uh, wrote Chester A. Arthur a letter. And she said, hello. Um, this is a hard time for everybody. Uh, James Garfield is probably going to die. And um, everybody in the country is very sad. But they are not sad because the president is dying as much as they are sad because you are going to be president, which is a pretty sick burn from, Julie, from 19th century Julia Sand, right? Um, but there's a twist. She says, but you don't have to be the terrible president that we all think you're going to be, right? And um, there's this prevailing idea that uh, the president, the presidency doesn't make the man, the man makes the presidency. And if that's true, boy, are we in trouble. But it doesn't have to be true. You can allow the, the, the power of this office to change you. You can be a better man. You can, you can make change. You can, you can be good. Um, and Arthur was really inspired by this. Uh, and they became pen pals. And then he became president. Um, and then his primary achievement was signing the Pendleton Reform Act, which... Um, regulated a lot of the stuff that was going on. He basically made it impossible for someone like him to ever be president again. And it, it shocked everybody. Uh, so I think it's very inspiring. You know, I, I think of it, it reminds me a little bit of um, uh, that, uh, that song, uh, uh, Right Field. Um, I'm not going to sing another song, don't worry. Uh, you know, the, is, is it Peter, Paul, and Mary, who does Right Field? You guys know what I'm talking about? No one knows what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about, right? Is it Peter, Paul, and Mary? Is it just Paul? Oh, Peter and Mary were like, I don't want anything to do with this. So the song Right Field is about a kid in Little League, and he plays right field. And kind of the gimmick of the song is like, this is, this is a bullshit position. Uh, I don't think he uses the word bullshit position in the song. But this is dumb. I'm out here in the back. The ball's never going to get to me. I'm just like hanging out. It's easy. All I have to do is watch the dandelions grow. And then at one point, the ball comes right towards him, and he catches it, and he saves the day. Uh, and then he says, right field is important. you got to know how to catch. you got to know how to throw. Um, and I feel like Chester Arthur is kind of the right fielder of presidents, that he kind of fell into this position, didn't know what to do with it, but he somehow came out better because of it. Um, and that really inspires me. Uh, so that's something that I've been thinking about. And I wrote a story. Uh, which I'm going to read part of it. This is actually the longest story in this book, so I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but I'm going to read you uh, a section of it, just enough, just a taste, just enough that you go, oh, man, i got to know what happens. i got to buy this book. That's, that's why I'm here. Um, and, and it's not about any of that stuff I just said, but it's good to know that stuff because it, I think it informs it, and I think the fact that you guys now know that, I think you will appreciate the story in a different way than someone who didn't know all that stuff. Um, and the title of the story is More of the You That You Already Are, uh, alluding to this idea of um, does the presidency make you a better person or does it just bring out more of the you that you already are? Being a president of the United States is the easiest thing in the world, basically. The main thing is you got to show up on time. I know this because one time I show up like three minutes late, which is still technically on time, basically. And Mr. Gupta just about bites my head off. 6.15 means 6.15, he's like. And I'm like, I'm sorry, the traffic, which isn't even the real reason I'm late, but that's just what I say now. Because one time when I was late at this Quiznos I worked at, I told my boss it was because of Ramona. 
And at first he was real nice about it, but I could tell it bummed him out. And then like a week later, I got fired because he said my family situation was interfering with my job performance, which wasn't even true, really, because I could still make a killer sub like nobody's business. But anyway, now when I'm late, I just say it's because of traffic. So then Mr. Gupta's like, if you can't make it a priority to be here on time, I'm sure I can find someone who will. And I want to be like, come on, man, I'm like three minutes late. But then I know he'd be like, and look at all this additional time we're wasting arguing about it. And sure, then I could be like, yeah, but no one is forcing you to argue with me. You could just let it slide. But the thing you got to know about Mr. Gupta is that Mr. Gupta is never going to let anything slide. So you're better off usually just cutting your losses, which I guess is also one of the things you got to know if you want to be a president. So instead, I'm just like, I'm very sorry, sir. It won't happen again. So then you go see Emika at wardrobe to pick up your costume. You're supposed to show Emika your park ID with your picture and your presidential number on it so she knows what suit to pull. But if you've been there more than like a day, Emika knows who you are and she's getting your costume before you even pulled out your wallet. You walk into the room and Emika lights up and is like, well, if it isn't President Arthur. Technically, she's not supposed to say that because according to park policy, you're not really President Arthur until you put the costume on. Park policy is very specific on this point. I guess because one time Thomas Jefferson was going around town all like, I'm Thomas Jefferson, and trying to get free shit out of it, like milkshakes or whatever, and picking up girls. And when that got back to park management, Mr. Gupta got his ass chewed out by the guys at corporate. So then we all got our asses chewed out by Mr. Gupta. Anyway, Emika's real friendly, and she's got great stories, even though they're never really about anything. I guess it's more the way she tells the stories. Like, the story could be, Teddy Roosevelt lost a button, and Emika had to sew on a new one. But from the way she tells it, you think it was the most interesting story in the world, full of twists and turns and heroes and villains. One time, Valerie took a double shift because I guess Emika had to go to a wedding. And when I walked into wardrobe and I saw Valerie in the morning, that was probably the worst day of my life. Also, that was the day the doctor told us Ramona's sickness had spread to her bones. So it was definitely a real bad day. I'm not saying the two things are related necessarily. Valerie sitting in for Emika and my sister's sickness spreading to her bones. All I know is I feel much better every morning when Emika's there. Nothing against Valerie. I just like Emika better. Anyway, after you get your costume from Emika, you go into the changing room and you put your big giant head on, and then, ta-da, you're a president. Being Chester A. Arthur is like the easiest president to be, because basically you just have to stand around outside the entrance to the Rutherford B. Hedge Maze by the bridge to a better tomorrow over the river of racial intolerance. And sometimes Lincoln walks by, and then people ask if you'll take their picture with Lincoln, and you're just like, sure, I'm Chester A. Arthur. I'm not doing anything. <laughs> and, okay, some days it feels like, what's even the point of being a president if you're just going to be Chester A. Arthur? Like, there's this other guy who started on the same day I did, and he gets to be Franklin Roosevelt, which is a doubly sweet gig, because, first of all, everyone loves FDR, but the even sweeter part is you get to sit down all day. <laughs> Except for during the 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue Review, when at the end of your New Deal song, you stand up for like five seconds, and it's a huge fucking to-do. <laughs> you get a round of applause just for standing up. And you don't even have to do a soft shoe routine like Calvin Coolidge does. But also, if you're FDR, the shitty part is, you gotta memorize all these facts about FDR, who was president for like a hundred years just about. And people are always coming up to you, asking questions like, What's the only thing we have to fear? And what do you have against the Japanese anyway? And if you get them even a little bit wrong, then some kid's jerk parent is going to complain to park management, and then you know Mr. Gupta is going to get all up in your ass about it. So all things being equal, I'd rather be Chester A. Arthur, honestly. 
Some days Benjamin Harrison wanders by for a couple hours, which isn't so bad because at least it's someone to talk to. And then I got a couple pages about Benjamin Harrison. I'm not going to skip those. You can, you can read those later. Um, but Benjamin Harrison isn't a bad guy 90% of the time. And sometimes he has interesting things to talk about. Like one time he saw the new X-Men movie. And then on Monday he told me the whole story so I didn't have to pay to see it myself. That was pretty decent of him. And he didn't have to do that. He even acted out some of the fight scenes. He also always has good gossip about what's been going on around the park on account of him being a floater and all. So sometimes he can tell you shit like a little kid peed all over James Monroe. That's hilarious because first of all, if you knew James Monroe even a little bit, you'd be like, fuck that guy. <laughs> but also because Founding Fathers Square is about as far as you can get from wardrobe. So you have to imagine Monroe having to walk all the way across the park covered in little kid piss. And just picturing that could be the highlight of your week pretty much. So... Whenever Harrison wants to talk about his extra-large fuck doll that he keeps in the back of his van, that's the page that I skipped, and I want to be like, dude, shut the fuck up, nobody cares. Instead, I'm just like, come on, man, there are kids here. And that usually does the trick. If any guest of the park wants to talk to you, which basically only happens if there's a long line to talk to one of the important presidents, there's really just two things you have to know about Chester A. Arthur. One, I became president when President Garfield pissed somebody off and got assassinated. And two, my primary achievement was the Pendleton Reform Act. Then, if someone asks you what the Pendleton Reform Act was, you can probably jump off the ground and fly to Hollywood and kiss a supermodel on the mouth, because you are definitely in a dream right now. Because literally no one ever asks a follow-up question about the Pendleton Reform Act. Then at the end of the day, you change out of your costume and you return it to Valerie in wardrobe, or sometimes Emika if Valerie and Emika switch shifts. I like seeing Emika in the morning because then it feels like it's going to be a good, normal day with no surprises. But if Emika and Valerie switch shifts and I see Emika at the end of the day, that's not the worst thing in the world either, I guess. The only problem is I feel bad giving my sweaty costume to Emika for her to clean, which is, I guess, the downside of Emika working the night shift. I like to imagine Emika coming into work in the morning and pulling my costume out of the dryer, clean and warm, maybe even holding her cheek up to Chester A. Arthur's chest to get a little of that warmth. Anyway, that's like a typical day. Or it was before all this shit started going down. The shit starts on Sunday, of course. Shit always starts on Sunday. I guess because that's our last day, so if management wants to flip some switch that makes everything go all badass nutty, everyone can cool off over the weekend, which is what we call Monday. And then we come back to work on Tuesday, it's like nothing ever happened. Anyway... I'm already in a bad way on the day the shit starts going down because the night before, Ramona gets a bad reaction to her new medication. So I'm up all night keeping her company while she throws up every 20 minutes. We try to make a game of it where every time she barfs, I ask her a question about one of her favorite things. Hey, Ramona, what do you think of the new Drake album? <laughs> really? You used to love Drake. You don't like the new stuff? <laughs> wow, strong reaction. Guess I should delete all the Drake songs off your phone. Guess you hate Drake now. And Ramona smiles, even while barfing, and is like, you're so stupid. And I'm glad I could be there for Ramona and make her smile, but the end result is I'm real tired at work the next day, which is not the way you want to be when shit starts to go down. At this point, Van Buren's been on leave for about a week, on account of him taking his wiener out and waving it at a bunch of deaf kids during the fireworks show. It's not that he's a pervert, he tried to explain. He just got confused between deaf kids and blind kids. <laughs> I guess Mr. Gupta doesn't go for that explanation, because after a word, week, word trickles down that Van Buren's not coming back. 
And not just that Van Buren, Harrison says, any Van Buren. I don't get it. I'm like, what, are we just not going to have a Van Buren? And Harrison's like, would you miss him? Next thing is, Mr. Gupta is calling an all-presidents meeting after hours. This is serious business, an all-presidents meeting. Mostly, news goes out in small groups, and by the time they call in my group, my group is group five, word's already spread anyway. Last time I can remember an all-presidents meeting was when Madison was racist to one of the guests, so Mr. Gupta called us in all once so he could tell us, don't be racist. And Madison's like, but what if your guy really was racist? Like, what if he owned slaves? And Mr. Gupta's like, yeah, okay, but still, don't be racist. <laughs> this time, the meeting's about Van Buren. I'm sure you're all wondering why Van Buren isn't here, Mr. Gupta's like. And Franklin Pierce is like, because he showed his wiener to those deaf kids. And Mr. Gupta gets all flustered. like, no, well, yes, but that's... He takes a moment to regain his composure. I'm sure you're all wondering why Thomas Jefferson isn't here, Mr. Gupta's like. I look around. I hadn't noticed, but... Sure enough, Jefferson isn't there. In fact, a lot of people aren't there. Mr. Gupta smiles and is all, I'm sure you're thinking, how are we going to open the park next week without Andrew Jackson or James Monroe or John Adams or even George Washington? <laughs> I look around. Yeah, pretty weird. Well, Mr. Gupta continues, what if I told you we could get 10 presidents for the manpower of one. And not just people pretending to be presidents, real, actual presidents. Just then, the door to the extra office where no one's allowed opens, and a white lady in a suit backs out into the bullpen, holding a long chain. And she calls into the extra office like, come on, come on, buddy. A low groan comes out of the extra office where no one's allowed. And Benjamin Harrison and I look at each other like, well, this is some shit, huh? The white lady looks at us and smiles, white ladyly. And it's just like, he's very shy. And Mr. Gupta is all annoyed now. Like he called this whole meeting and everything. And now whatever is back there on the other side of that chain, which I guess was the whole point of it, won't even come out. And he's just like, is he coming or not? And the lady ignores Mr. Gupta and just keeps looking into the room like, come on, buddy. And the low groan gets louder. And out comes this thing on a leash. A terrifying, ten-foot-tall behemoth of a man, heaving with every breath, eyes bulging, lower jaw jutted, a gnarly rag doll made of people, stuffed into a half-buttoned colonial outfit. And the room fills with gasps and oh-my-gods and what-the-shits. And the lady speaks over us and announces, please do not alarm him, he is very temperamental. And Mr. Gupta shouts out, quiet! Everyone will be quiet, please, for our guest. And Kennedy is like, er, uh, what the hell is that thing? And the lady's like, it's not a what is that thing. It's a who is that thing. Mr. Gupta beams. You know, a lot of you have maybe forgotten how important President Land is. A lot of you think maybe this is all fun and games. But actually, President Land is a very educational place for families. A lot of respectable people think that what we do here is very noble work. I look over at the large man thing. It's drooling and looking around like it's scanning the room for an exit. I work for Frank Fielding, says the white lady. And everyone just kind of looks at her like, who? And she says again, annoyed, Frank Fielding? 
the Frank and Felicity Fielding Foundation, funding tomorrow's solutions today for yesterday's problems tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, yeah, because I'm pretty sure I heard that in a commercial once. The lady is smiling super wide now. Frank Fielding is a true visionary and a game changer. Some people say he's like the new Steve Jobs, but I actually think he's more like Che Guevara meets Gandhi, if Che Guevara and Gandhi were billionaires. And Harding's like, kind of sounds like you got a crush on Frank Fielding. And the lady's like, I do not have a crush on him because he is my boss. And besides, he has a wife, so that is impossible. Please ignore President Harding, Mr. Gupta cops out. He is very rude. The lady continues. We at the Frank and Felicity Fielding Foundation think what you do here is so vital and necessary. After all, who are presidents, if not the innovators and disruptors of history? And Hoover shouts out, who indeed? And Hoover's idiot buddies start giggling. And Mr. Gupta's like, guys, please. The lady continues. But why remember what history was when instead you can experience what history is? Through samples from their distant progeny, we at Fielding Corp Research Labs were able to reconstruct with 88% accuracy, literally up to 12% of the actual genetic makeup of the fathers of this nation. With that DNA data and the world's most powerful 4D printers, we were able to construct our tax-deductible gift to the park, Wadjum Majvit. <laughs> Say hello, Wadjum! She yanks on the chain, and the beast groans a plaintive guttural wail. Wajamajvit is a perfect genetic combination of the first ten presidents, Mr. Gupta announces proudly. Wajamajvit, the lady repeats. Washington, Adams, Jefferson, the rest. <laughs> and Mr. Gupta continues, not just guys in costume, I'm saying. This guy is the actual president. Oh, no, he is vomiting. <laughs> Sure enough, this thing is now puking all over the floor. Like, for real, just fire-hosing chunks all over the place. And part of me wants to cut through the awkwardness by asking the monster what it thinks of the new Drake album. <laughs> but I know I probably shouldn't in front of the white lady. She starts stroking his scraggly hair and says, It's okay. This is natural. People do this, Wadjum. This is natural. And Mr. Gupta's like, Please ignore the vomiting. Once we get the vomiting under control, Wajam Majvit will be beloved by children and visitors to the park of all ages. And that's the end of the meeting. Uh, and that's the end of the excerpt that I'm going to read for you today. If you want to read the rest, it's this book. And I'm going to put it right here. Um, and now we have some time for some questions from all of you. And I guess we have some microphones that you should speak into. If anyone has a question, just line up, and you can ask. And if you don't have a lot of questions, I can read more stories. But let's, <laughs> let's okay, questions. I'll make it very short, so you'll read more stories. Um, do you read the recorded version? Yeah, so the audiobook, um, there's a full cast of people. So I read, yeah. I read Salted Circus Cashews, uh, which I like I did tonight. Okay. Um, and I read the, the last story in the book. But the rest of it is uh, some of my actor friends. Um, and some actors who are not my friends, but I asked if they do it, and they said yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I, I, it's, it's a really great cast. Um, since we're here where the book is sold, I want to recommend buying the book. Yeah. Um, but I would also recommend buying the audiobook because it's, right. it's really fun. Great. Thank you. Sure. Cool. Um, so you are an expert at like writing with these really dark themes and bringing, as you said, hope and, and also the cynicism and everything. 
but especially as a creator myself, like how do you get to the point where you're able to bring all of that darkness to page or dealing, going yeah. through it? I mean, it's, it's funny because a lot of my work, uh, certainly on Bojack, but also even some of the early reviews of the book have commented on the, 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 the darkness or the sadness or the, the, the hopelessness, um, which I don't necessarily intend, you know, like I said, I think my work can be somewhat of a Rorschach test and I'm kind of, you know, meeting you where you're at. So, you know, I, I might ask you, what, what are you so dark about? <laughs> um, but I, I think the, the answer of how do I do it is I, I really try to um, write honestly. Um, and I, I think a big part of writing for me and, and what, I, what I attempt to do in my writing um, is to communicate or articulate things that I am feeling or experiencing to somebody else, the reader which maybe that's obvious. Maybe that's kind of what all writing is. Um, but that's what excites me. If I feel like, oh, this is a turn of phrase that perfectly captures a way that I felt that I haven't been able to put into words or haven't seen before, that's really exciting for me. Is it a meditation? No, I don't know if it's a meditation. Um, I think it's, 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 it takes work, you know, it's, it's, it's writing the bad version, you know, the, the kind of the naked, here's what I feel now, and then thinking, like, is there a more interesting way to phrase that, right? But you got you got to get down the feeling first. Um, and I, I think it's, it's yeah, trying to, I, I think when I felt like I found my voice as a writer, it was when I felt like I could was writing honestly the stuff that I wanted to be writing. And I think for a while I was writing what I thought I should be writing or what I thought good writing was supposed to be. And I think that's an important step. Like I, I wouldn't advise jumping over that because I think that's actually very helpful to, to, to finding your own voice. And even the word finding your own voice, I'm uncomfortable with it because I think you really craft your voice out of your influences and out of things you try on. Um, but I think if you write something that feels like, yes, this is good, that's good. If you write something and you feel, I think this is what people are looking for, I think you can do better. And I think it's about writing what you are looking for. And so for me, that means honestly articulating some feeling or observation, but for you, it could mean anything else. But I think, I think the goal is always to be more truthful to the kind of writer you want to be, which doesn't mean, you know, shutting everything else out and just, you know, looking at your navel. I think it's about trying stuff and seeing what feels good and seeing what feels awkward and maybe strengthening that, you know, uh, limb that does, isn't as strong or cutting it off and using this limb, you know? Um, yes. Hello. Oh, oh hello. I'm going back and forth. Okay. Hello. Um, I think I was just going to ask what everyone's really here to figure out is, uh, what is the Pendleton Reform Act? <laughs> so the, the, the Pendleton uh, Reform Act was it was um, so I feel bad that I'm giving uh, Chester Arthur all the credit because uh, it was a senator named Pendleton who if he was here he'd be like it's my act. <laughs> um, my understanding of it is it was uh, a means of, of checks and balances to make sure people who were appointed were appointed for the right reasons. Um, in this day and age, it seems like that doesn't always happen, so I don't know what happened to it. Um, but my understanding is that it was to kind of put an end to the, the cronyism or the favoritism or the nepotism that was 
running rampant in those days. So my real question, was, oh. <laughs> I'm just kidding, uh, was mostly like, how do you, um, like considering that you had this like explosive, you know, TV show that I'm not sure what it was, but um, <laughs> no. Uh, oh, Bojack Horseman. Yeah, Bojack Horseman. Like, how do you like not let that sort of like completely drive your next works? Like, how do you kind of like disconnect from what you've done previously? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think all my work exists on a continuum. Um, and I, I mean, I don't, I don't think of these stories necessarily as like, I'm going to prove to the world that I can do other things because I think actually tonally there, there's a, there's a lot of similarities. I, I think if you enjoy Bojack Horseman, I, I think you will enjoy these stories because I think they, they scratch, uh, a similar itch. And I, I'm not, I mean, I'm not afraid of Bojack Horseman, and so I, I don't feel like I need to prove that I can do other things. That's not so much a, a motivator to me. I mean, I enjoy the freedom that comes with a new kind of writing as far as format and, and, and a different way to tell stories. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't necessarily feel like I have to run away from my successes in the past. Um, you know, maybe if this, if this book fails and I try a bunch of other things that fail, and then I'm only known for BoJack Horseman, I will start to resent it. Um, but right now, I feel like I'm, I'm thrilled people love it, and I hope they also love my other stuff, too. Thanks. Um, I really have enjoyed BoJack Horseman um, a lot, but then after a Ooh, few... Oh, I like this. <laughs> <laughs> but after a few seasons, I was just so um, upset at his cynicism, his... his um, what's... Uh, uh, misogyny, his, his total lack of... Uh, of learning and um, I, 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 I put it aside and I, I may come back to it, but because there may be changes that I don't know that are coming in. I'm Maybe. excited. Yeah. But I mean, I don't understand why people just totally don't give up on, give up on him because he's such a destructive, you know, alcoholic, um, sexist pig of a horse. <laughs> Great question. <laughs> My answer would be keep watching. <laughs> Great answer. Or if you don't want to keep watching, buy the read book. This book. Lots of other characters that are not Bojack in this book. They don't even talk about Bojack in this book. Well, I for one love the show. Uh, I th I That's think okay. It's you don't have to love the show, guys. It's all right. But thank no, you. I, I do though. Um, That's okay. That's allowed to. Uh, I was gonna ask, uh, what advice do you? have for um for any aspiring up and coming storytellers um okay uh well my my advice is very practical uh about writing which is write a lot um and and uh read a lot um you know as i said earlier take in influences you know figure out what you like um what the kind of thing you want to be doing um when you see things you don't like or read things you don't like, think about why don't I like them? What would I do differently? That can be very helpful. Um, if you are feeling uninspired, pick up a book and read a few pages and you will, your head will be swimming with ideas. Um, the second part of that, so there's reading, but also you need to write. Um, before I was employed uh, and was busy all the time, there was a while where I was not busy all the time. I had plenty of time to write. And I used that time to write as much as I could. Um, my advice, what I used, my routine, which worked for me, uh, because I'm very distractible, um, and I imagine a lot of writers are. Um, but I, I used to 
uh, turn the internet on my comp- my laptop off before I went to bed each night. And then when I woke up in the morning, I would not turn the internet back on until I had written for four hours. And I didn't have to start writing right away if I wanted to eat breakfast, to go for a walk around the neighborhood. Um, but I, I couldn't check my email. I couldn't go online until I put four hours in. Because I feel like, for me, after four hours of writing, I'm basically useless. But if I don't get started writing until, like, two in the afternoon, it's, like, over for me. Like, I, I, I'm someone who needs to get started right away without distraction. Um, I would take my laptop to a coffee shop where I didn't know the Wi-Fi password. And if I overheard someone saying the Wi-Fi password, it was ruined for me, and I couldn't go back to that coffee shop. <laughs> um, I would actually, once smartphones were a thing, um, I would lock my smartphone in the trunk of my car. Because if I have it, I will be distracted by it. So if I'm writing something and I need, like, oh, what was the name of that song that I want to make a joke about? I will put in brackets, insert song later. I won't look it up in the moment. Because I could look it up and then, like, an hour has passed. Like, oh, my God, what happened? <laughs> so I would say the more you can limit your distractions and just write, you will. that's the best way to write. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, Fish Out of Water might be some of the most beautiful television I've ever seen Thank in you. my life. And between that, that is an episode of BoJack Horseman. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Between that, uh, Free Trezo, another episode of BoJack, and now these uh, short stories, uh, they're all different ways of telling stories. That's right. And um, so, I mean, you talked a little bit about having that like freedom and flexibility to tell it, but like, is this something you like intentionally do to put like constraints on yourself, challenge yourself? Or like, what are the difficulties and like decisions yes. that go into that? Um, so yeah, in, in, in this book of short stories, there are a lot of different kinds of stories, right? Like um, one of them is in the form of a list. Um, one of them is like a, uh, in the form of like a tourist guide to New York City. Um, one is a poem. Um, and I, I really enjoy playing with forms. And I think uh, this comes a little bit from my, my sketch comedy days. Um, because we used to, in my comedy group, would think of, like, what's a cool kind of sketch we want to do? You know, like, let's do a music video, or let's do a movie trailer, you know, and then, like, okay, what does that look like? How does, you know, and, and then we think, okay, what's the joke here, right? And so I think a lot of the ways I think about stories might feel a little counterintuitive or backwards, because I always want the uh, form to match the function. I want it to be justified somehow by the story I'm telling, but that doesn't always mean that the story comes first and then that defines the form. A lot of times I'll come up with the form first and then I'll think, okay, what is a story that would necessitate this kind of storytelling, right? So for uh, Free Churro, for example, I wanted to do an episode of BoJack that was just BoJack doing a monologue. And then we thought, well, what would be a reason he would have to do a monologue, right? Um, same with uh, Fish Out of Water. I wanted to do an episode uh, that was all silence without any without any dialogue we thought okay how do we justify that in the story so it doesn't just look like everyone's not talking for 30 minutes um so that was that for me i find is a really helpful way into a story if you think of like what kind of thing do i want to do and for me i always think each of these stories in the book i i kind of think have two hooks to them you know uh the first hook is kind of the gimmick of the story and the second hook is the story itself right so and that's part of the story i just read right the first hook is kind of the discovery as you're reading of it. Oh, he's a president at a theme park, right? And like, oh, I, I get what's happening. There's like a, a fun kind of um, disassociation because he's, he's, set, he's referring to all these people like they're presidents, but they're just a bunch of like, you know, uh, hoodlums, you know, and, and, and ne'er-do-wells, uh, a, bunch of, a bunch of teens, right? 
Um, and there's, there's, there's kind of a, a fun energy there. But then once I figure that out, I go, okay, but I got to figure out what the actual story is, right? And that kind of clicks in with the introduction of, of Wadjim Majvid. I think you could probably also notice I'm laying some things in about his sick sister, right? Like there's, there's a story there too. And so for me, I don't want a story that feels like it's just gimmick, uh, because that to me feels like a comedy sketch. And I feel like I have outgrown that, those sorts of silly uh, distractions. Um, but I also don't want a story that feels like it's just a story, because to me that feels boring. So I like to think, like, can I have some fun with this, but also find the emotional grounding in it? And that's kind of my goal with all of these. Yes? Um, in crafting your own voice, uh, who or what have been the biggest influences on your writing? Um, I think that's impossible to say. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think... Um, I couldn't tell you biggest. Uh, I, there's a lot of influences that come from all directions. I can name a few of them. Um, one one uh, writer that I really love is uh, named Catherine Heine. Uh, she has a book called Single Carefree Mellow of Short Stories. Um, but I first read her in high, in high school creative writing class. She had a book called uh, How, to, How to Give the Wrong Impression, um, which was the first time I ever uh, encountered a, a short story told in the second person. Um, since then, I've read other older works told in the second person. So she did not invent this trick, uh, but I was fascinated by it. In fact, a lot of the stories in this book are told in the second person. So I think it's a really interesting way to to get in somebody's brain. Um, and, and it feels more personal than stories told in the first person. Um, but I think her book is very good. Um, there's a, a short story by Jonathan Safran Foer called uh, Primer for the Punctuation of Heart Disease, uh, which I think similarly to me plays with form in a really interesting way to tell an emotional story. Um, uh, Sarah Manguso is a writer I really like. She's a book called 300 Arguments. Um, I have a, a piece in here called Short Stories that are just 10 sentence long stories that are very much inspired by her kind of writing. Um, I, I, uh, there's a, a piece called uh, Hoyas Valadores by Brian Doyle that I really love that I think about a lot. Um, those are some influences. Does anyone play with the sort of, as you alluded to, the cynicism and the hope juxtaposition? Sure, I think a lot of people do. I mean, um, one of my favorite movies is uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, that I think really does that really well. And I have, I have a whole theory about that movie, but I, I think what makes it work is the collaboration uh, between Charlie Kaufman and Michelle Gondry, uh, because for me personally, neither of them, I think, have made a work on their own as affecting as that movie. And I think uh, one of them, to my taste, is a little too cynical. And I think uh, one of them, to my taste, is a little too whimsical. But I think put together, they complement each other really well. Mm -hmm. And that's, that mix is kind of what I aim for. Thank you. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good. My name is Addison. Hi, um, Addison. So you answered earlier sort of the... So why are you asking me again? <laughs> <laughs> about writing advice. But my question for you is if you could go back to your early 20s and give yourself any piece of advice, what would it be? I'd say hang in there, buddy. Because one day Addison's going to ask you a great question. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I think, unfortunately, your 20s is something you have to muddle through. Um, I mean, maybe I would have told myself, like, be nicer to people and to yourself. Thank you. <laughs> um, I was wondering, on your bookstore trips, if you've had any reflections or if anything has surprised you in presenting the stories to audiences that are specific to this medium or this book. The medium of short stories? Them or well, I guess writing short stories and then 
like writing them versus reading them to a crowd. Yeah, well, my my I will say my my book tour has only just begun. This is my second stop, um, so I don't know. Um, <laughs> this question was a surprise to me, um, but I actually I did uh, while I was working on the book, I did a a, a show uh, in in Los Angeles where I, I had a bunch of actors, some of whom ended up being on my audiobook, uh, read the stories out loud to an audience. Um, which I found very helpful. Uh, you know, I, I, as I, I come from a, a, a live performance background. Um, I think it is really great to kind of feel what's working, what isn't working. Um, you know, I think a, a good piece of writing advice to anyone, whether they're writing something to be read aloud or not, is to read it out loud and see how it feels in your mouth. Because certain phrases will catch you off guard and go, oh, that, that, the momentum of that sentence was different than I thought. And it's especially helpful to have other people read it out loud because you can hear, oh, I meant for this sentence to be feeling sad, but the reader didn't get that. And so I need to put more clues into the text of how this, is, this sentence is supposed to be felt. Um, so that, that was very helpful for me. Um, I'm hoping on my, on my book tour now as I read stories, I don't make too many new discoveries because it is too late to change <laughs> So I would be devastating. Although in, in that, um, I already noticed a mistake in the, the story, the, the president story I just read. Uh, and maybe some of you caught it. Is that, um, and I, I noticed that the, the very day I received, like, the finished book, <laughs> I, like, opened to a random page and I was being like, oh, shit. Uh, so we're, we're going to fix it in future editions. And we've actually already, we were able to make an edit in the audiobook to, to clean it up. But so I, I mentioned, uh, you know, Harrison's not a bad guy most of the time. And uh, sometimes on Monday, he'll, he'll tell me about the X-Men movie he saw that weekend. And then, like, a page later, I say that Monday is the weekend. That's a mistake, right? I blew it. Where where were the copy editors on that one? They had a, they had a grand old time pointing out all the commas and hyphens I put in the wrong places. Um, but so you know, there's there's things like that, and it's nice. It's kind of nice to be like, okay, this book isn't perfect. What a relief. Thank you. Yes. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right. Yeah. Um, my name is Nicolette. I'm here with my best friend, Melanie. Great. Um, we love BoJack Horseman, Thank and you. we talk about the show all the time together. We always like to dissect it. So I just want to ask, what was your inspiration when you first started writing the show? And what was the kind of impact that you wanted to make on the audience as you were writing? Um, when I first started writing, uh, the impact I wanted to make was, I hope someone gives me a TV show um, so I can pay rent. Um, this is the show people want to see. Here it is. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I wanted to, uh, I'm trying to tell a version of this that's, that I haven't told interviews over and over again. Um, but not just go, you know, when I first had the idea, I wanted to make a show with animal people because my friend Lisa was an artist and she drew animal people. I thought, what would be a fun thing to work with my friend? And then I was living up in the Hollywood Hills and my car broke down and I was stranded up there and uh, I felt so uh, on top of the world but never more alone and isolated. So I want to tell the story of a guy who had, had every opportunity to be happy but still couldn't find a way. That's like my rote answer um, of what I wanted to explore. But I'll say actually what I've discovered uh, from making the show of what I'm really proud of, which I think is actually more interesting, not to um, neg your question, uh, which is a, a wonderful question, and it got me to this place, so I'm thankful for it. Um, but similarly, you know, to what I was saying earlier, I didn't really know what this book was until I started talking about it. I don't think I really knew what the show was or was meant to be until people started telling me about it. And I think all art 
is a, you know, you're, you're tossing a grappling hook uh, across a canyon, and it's not really anything until there's someone on the other side to catch it and go, I, on this side of the canyon, it feels like this, right? And so what I found, the most rewarding uh, thing about BoJack, and now what I aspire to do, is when people tell me that I have helped them articulate a feeling or experience for themselves that they didn't, they were not able to identify beforehand. Like, people have told me, I've talked to my therapist about this episode, and or I realized I was treating my friend like this when I saw that episode, and that makes me feel really good, and that makes me feel like I am I am doing a good thing for the world, and also paying rent at the same time. Hello. Thank you. Hi. Oh, hello. I'm just going to say uh, this right here will be our last question. Great. Pressure's on. It's the last one. Oh boy. So I think you mentioned earlier that all the stories in the book are sort of tied together by the idea or the theme of love. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously love has been something that's been written about since the beginning of time. It has? <laughs> Shocker, I know. Oh, no! <laughs> but I, I wonder, is like, there a certain aspect about love that you felt like you had to work through through your writing? Or like, what was it about love that you wanted to tie all your stories together by? Sure. I mean, at first it was just... I want to write a bunch of stories, and this feels like a broad enough theme that I can write a bunch of different kinds of stories within it. You know, it's not, it's just enough structure that's helpful, but not so much that it is limiting. Um, and like I said, I think I really found the spine of the book as I was writing it. Um, but I, I think what is interesting to me about the book, and, you know, I don't know if this will be interesting to anybody else, so you'll come to it with your own thing. Um, <laughs> but what I find interesting about it is, is I wrote this book in some ways, over the last 10 years, that it was really, I mean, some of these pieces are pieces I wrote not knowing what I would do with them. Um, I didn't know I was writing a book of short stories. And then, you know, in the last two years, when I got my book deal, I was like, okay, now I'm writing these for the book. But I cover a lot of emotional ground in my own life in this book. Um, and I, I, what I enjoy about it is I feel like there's a real journey within it, um, not necessarily in order. Uh, because I mixed them all up. Uh, but I think there's a journey in it uh, from a maybe more cynical 20-something um, who was sure uh, that I was going to be alone forever, um, or even if I found someone that I would still be alone, um, and that any promise of anything else was fiction, um, to what I would call myself now, which is a slightly more mellow 30-something uh, who is happily married, and feels very hopeful about love and the kinds of connections you can make that I didn't know were possible earlier. Um, and so what I enjoy about this book is it has both perspectives. And I don't know if I could write some of those stories now the way I wrote them then. Um, but I appreciate that they exist because I think that person was a real person too. Um, and so I guess in some ways this book is an autobiography of my evolution in thinking about love. Thanks, guys. Um, thank you. So. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of the